You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. This is a session on nonverbal communication. I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction, and then the panel and I will have a good time, and hopefully you'll, you'll benefit from that. Okay, so communication is the act by which information is shared between human beings. And notice that communication is a two-sided process. Communication is not a monologue. It's a natural process. It can be intentional or unintentional, and both verbal and nonverbal. And the nonverbal is frequently unintentional, but you can learn a lot from nonverbal communication. In fact, and that's what we're going to concentrate on. It's essential. In our field, it's very important because communication forms the basis for understanding and trust between healthcare provider and patient. But poor communication, the other side of the coin, can lead to misunderstanding. In the business world, it can hinder productivity, and in medicine, poor communication can lead to ethical, medical legal issues, as well as delivery of poor health care. Because if you're not communicating properly to the patient, then they may not do what you're hoping that they will do so that you can help them from a medical standpoint. So part of the communication is us to the patients. But there's also communication, it's a two-way street, from the patients back to us. And it's not only what they say, it's some nonverbal things as well. So also in the medical field as a whole, I mean, we're really going to concentrate on patients and caregivers. But remember that we communicate every day with nurses, receptionists, billing people, our colleagues, administrators. Sometimes we have to give evidence in court. We may write papers. We may report research findings. Occasionally you may talk to the media, public, legislature. So all of these kinds of communications may be involved in your professional life. We're going to concentrate on the communication between providers and patients, but some of the same things especially in nonverbal communication, apply in every single one of these arenas as well. Whether you're talking to someone who's a receptionist in your office or you're talking to a reporter. So communication is also a learned skill and can be taught. Some people have a natural talent at communication. You know, Ronald Reagan, the great communicator. But you can also improve your communication skills and there are several books, I just put one up here, which can help you if you feel deficient. Or you can come to a session like this. But the whole process of communication between us and the patients is a really complex one. And certainly you can always strive to improve your communication skills. Not only what you impart to the patient, but understanding what the patient is saying to you verbally as well as non-verbally. Now, the interesting thing is this, and I actually saw a talk on this, which is why I went and made a talk that was 
referenced to, to physicians and PAs and nurse practitioners and other healthcare providers. But, you know, most people think that communication is largely verbal, but a lot of it is nonverbal. And this is very important. In fact, it becomes even more difficult in a multicultural, multi-ethnic world that we live in practice in because sometimes what you think nonverbal things mean are not exactly what they mean. Or the way we use nonverbal communication may not be interpreted the same way by those in other cultures. And I'm going to give you some specific and very relevant examples of that. But remember that much of what we're communicating is nonverbal, and I found this in a paper, and I don't know if it's exactly correct. Lord knows everybody has their own little research findings, but I found this very interesting. Words, in terms of communication as a whole, words, verbal communication, what we say, is actually in the minority. Our vocal tone is very important. You know, you can say something and the way you say it and the intonation that you use and the emphasis that you use may mean as much or way more than the words and at least in this one paper they were saying 55% of communication relates to nonverbal things to body language so this is a very important thing and remember, as much as we would like to think that our patients are telling us everything, not always exactly the case. And that's why watching for their nonverbal communication as evidenced by body language is important. So did you know that the first impression is formed in 1 40th of a second? You walk into that exam room with a new patient in particular, and you have less than a second till they form their first impression of you. The patient decides whether the provider is intelligent, likable, and empathetic according to research in four seconds. Four seconds. So it's very important to put your verbal and nonverbal best foot forward immediately. And do you know research says that we, the providers, decide with a new patient in particular if they're going to be enjoyable to care for in 18 seconds. And here's the thing, shocking, that if you give the wrong false impression, it can take up to six months of frequent exposure to reverse. So if you're caring for someone with a disorder that's really critical, that they follow your instructions carefully and you leave them with a bad first impression, it can take six months till that bad first impression reverses and they're willing to listen to you. So always best foot forward first. What do we mean by nonverbal communication? Everything from facial expressions, gestures, eye contact, the distance you maintain between you and the patient, whether you touch the patient, we'll talk a little bit about that towards the end. Even moments of silence are a method of communication. Your vocal modulation, body movements, how you're dressed, what color scheme you have, all of these things 
are part of nonverbal communication. We can't cover them all. There are actually sciences that study each one of these things. So nonverbal communication may tell you what the patient wants to say but maybe isn't saying, what they really need, what they'll be satisfied with, what they're happy with, and contrary, what they're upset with. Nonverbal communication can tell you that. And the other way around, you may be telling the patient through nonverbal means how confident you are, how empathetic you are, how enthusiastic you are, how likable you are, how trustworthy you are, how involved you are, and how smart you are. Non-verbally, it's very important. So I'm going to start with one thing that's fairly obvious, and I've taken some really extreme examples, and then I'm going to get the panel involved with some other things. So here you go. Just pretend for a minute that you've experienced chest pain. Your primary care physician has referred you to a specific cardiologist who you are meeting for the first time. You checked the credentials, and this cardiologist went to Harvard Medical School, did internal medicine at Stanford, went to the Texas Heart Institute for a cardiology fellowship. And you're seeing this cardiologist for the first time. You have chest pain. You're anxious. You're afraid you're going to keel over from an MI in the next 24 hours. And you need to trust that cardiologist. You walk in the room, you're put in the room by a nurse or an MA, and the door opens, and in walks your new cardiologist. Which one of these do you really want taking care of your heart? I'm particularly fond of the one in the teal blue leisure suit myself, but think about it for a second. I know some of these you, you would never see in the healthcare setting, but you want to give an impression to your patient in that first 140th of a second that you are a reliable, intelligent, you can take care of their problems provider. And I beg to differ if the lady in the bottom to your bottom left, that's actually a mug shot. You know, I, I'm not so sure I'd want her taking care of me even if she went to Stanford. So just think about it. How you look matters. Okay. You already know some forms of verbal communicate nonverbal communication because they're nearly universal. So Lauren, what's being expressed here? Joy, happiness. You know, the, the great big smiles that you see, especially in the upper right. Yes. And Joe, what's being expressed here? Dismay, to, to put it mildly. Yes, dismay and things that relate to that that are even worse, right? And Lauren, what Ang is this person telling you? Anger, intensity... Ferociousness. Yes. yes. <laughs> Anger, rage, right before a road rage episode. And Joe, what's being expressed here? They don't understand. Or perhaps they're 
concerned or questioning or questioning yes so these kind of facial expressions are nearly universal lauren sad feeling depressed feeling kind of hopeless yes absolutely these are easy because they're fairly universal and this is true in almost every single culture according to the people who study the science of nonverbal communication. From happiness to worry to anger to sadness, surprise, disgust, I didn't show. But these are universal expressions, and you can read them very, very quickly. And don't hesitate to do so. How about some other nonverbal communications, some gestures? So starting at the upper left, What does this generally mean? Okay, right? Yay, good, something positive. You know what the one next to it means, so I won't verbalize that. And what does this mean? What has this meant since the time of the Roman Colosseum? Negative, down, go ahead, kill the gladiator, right? That's what this, remember? The emperor was thumbs up, save him, thumbs down, kill him. And what does this mean? Somebody does this to you, what are they saying? Stop. Even dancers, you know, stop in the name of love. (laughs) So these are universal. But they aren't universal. I want you to remember this because every once in a while, I use this a lot for, you know, how am I doing, doc? You're doing great. You know, how's my MF doing after our, our phototherapy and potent topical steroids and, you know, topical chemotherapy with nitrogen mustard? How's my MF doing? Right on, Mr. Jones. But there's a cultural variation in some of these. Let me just show you an example. This, in some parts of Latin America, Russia, Southern Italy and Middle East is the equivalent of this. So if you have a patient who comes from an area where this means this, and you say, and he says, she says, how's my MF doing? And you go like this, it's like, you know, that's not good at all. You're giving the wrong nonverbal communication. So be very careful. Let me show you one more example. Oh, gigam. Texas A&M. Okay, let me show you one more example. Winston Churchill was famous in World War II for using this sign, and it can be with the palm towards the person or the palm away from the person. And this means peace, the peace sign, or it can mean, as he was using it, V for victory, right? We're going to overcome the Germans were going to win the war, V for victory. Except that this sign with the palm towards the person who's making a V is the same as this sign in Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, and certain parts of Italy. And I've used this too. And remember, it could mean this. So be very careful, especially in people. Those nonverbal signs are true here, but with people from other cultures, those very commonly used 
We understand nonverbal signs can mean something entirely different and something you do not want to express or convey to your patient. This particular sign in India is happiness. This is peace, peace, love. And think about this. This sign is V, victory, I'm happy. This is Richard Nixon as he's accepting the nomination to run for President of the United States in an election that he won. So he's jubilant. And the polls show he probably is going to win. And he did. And here he used the same sign the day he was getting on a helicopter after he had to resign in disgrace from the presidency. I don't really think he meant the same thing. So you have to take nonverbal communication in its situation and in its context. So Lauren, if you were to make this sign to someone in the United States, what would you be saying? Time out, hold up, stop the clock. Yeah, time out. But you know what this sign means in Japan? It means bring the check just showing you that there are cultural variations in gestures that you make. Be very careful about making gestures to people of other cultures. That's the message here. Now, let's talk about real nonverbal communication that goes on in the office. So here I have two healthcare providers who are about to take care of you. Joe, do you see a difference between the two of them other than their obvious height and gender difference, but how they're walking in the room, and does it matter? Would one put you more at ease? I, no. Lauren? Possibly the, the male, just because his smile is brighter and, and more, you see teeth, and, and maybe that impression makes him seem happier to be there. She, unfortunately, I don't want to bring gender and stature into it, but... I think some of that perception of being a little more unsure and meek, which is not fair to her because of you know, her body type, but I think maybe more so him with his bright smile. Yes, I think there is a difference because of the smile. That's how I had them posed deliberately. And actually, she was anything from meek. Oh my God, this is one of the best residents, but also one of the most aggressive residents <laughs> I've ever had the opportunity to train. But yes, smile. It may or may not matter, but a smile does indicate that you're friendly, approachable, likable. It tends to be reassuring and comforting. And while medical care is certainly a serious business, the patient generally prefers you to be friendly, approachable, likable, comforting, and reassuring, even when they're worried and upset. So a smile is a good way to walk in the office. And I will give you a personal, you, you can do it however you want to, but when I walk into an office, and I, into the exam room, and I'm seeing a patient for the very first time, I don't walk in there and I don't use my credentials, I don't use my academic rank, I don't even use anything that has any trappings. I say, hi, I'm Ted Rosen. That's it. 
And I've had people, you know, do you, do you all have Presgany? Does mm-hmm. anybody know what Presgany is? Where you, they, the unfortunately. patients, unfortunately, where the patients comment about you. And I, we get all our Presgany comments back. And I've had a fair number of Presgany comments that say, that was so refreshing to have somebody come in without trappings and without being pretentious and without saying, hi, I'm Ted Rosen, Dr. Ted Rosen, I'm professor of dermatology, or anything like that. Hi, just my name. So, but a smile, I think, is a good way to start an encounter. Smile on your face. And sometimes you may be having a bad day, and you may not feel like smiling. But remember, in that moment, you're there for the patient, and your own personal Trials and tribulations and problems have to be set aside. And even if you don't feel like smiling, you smile. Smile to the patient. Okay. Handshake. I think this is an interesting nonverbal communication. And it has some ramifications and some recent implications. So we'll start with Joe and then Lauren. Do you shake hands when you walk in to see the patient? Do you think it matters, Joe? Yes, and I do. And you do. Do you think it's good? Do you think the patient likes that? Or do you do it just because you're used to doing it? Well, first I either wash my hands or put a little germ killer on my hands right before I shake hands with them. I do that deliberately even though I don't always need it. And then I shake hands. Okay. Lauren? So I'm, I'm a little different. I, I do certainly shake hands. I walk in, um, my, my little spiel is, I walk in with a salutation, good morning, good afternoon. I'm Lauren. I directly have direct eye contact for the first three to four seconds, a firm handshake. Then I tell them, hold on, I'm just going to go wash my hands quickly. Because with the hand sanitizer, a lot of people, like with the Prescani, not personally, but people have gotten commented that they think that they're just putting lotion on. <laughs> so I actually mentioned that, that I'm going to wash my hands. But I do, very firm handshake with good direct eye contact for the first few seconds. Okay. So both our panelists and myself shake hands. And when you do a handshake, traditionally this was done to show you have no weapon. I'm not dangerous. It also means we're connecting. It's one pump, palm up, palm open, thumb up. And also, keep in mind, a good handshake is equivalent, according to people who do research on this, to three hours of positive interaction. That first handshake. And I do that with every patient. New patient, old patient, doesn't make a difference. And most patients, according to research, actually do prefer a handshake from their healthcare provider. If I'm ill, I actually explain that and I say that to them. I'm not going to shake your hand today because I don't want to spread my germs to you. That's a really good point. Now, Lauren mentioned the word firm, and that's important. If you're going to shake the hand, it's not sort of a half-assed handshake because a firm handshake transmits to the patient you're confident, self-assured. You're interested, you're focused, and you're serious, whereas a sort of half-assed limpy handshake means you're uncertain or insecure, you're intimidated by them, you don't have determination, and you're weak. And this is from many, many, many thousands of people and research that's done in a scientific sort of fashion. So if you're going to shake hands, you should shake hands firmly. 
Now, how about this from JAMA 2014? An editorial where they are saying we should no longer shake hands because shaking hands is a good way to transmit disease from person to person. And they're recommending alternative greetings. They acknowledge the fact in this editorial that patients do want to be greeted. But they say other ways of doing it are waving with your palm, a fist bump, which I think is a little informal, a namaste sign like this, a bow, hand over the heart with a bow. None of these is, is really sort of a standard way of greeting somebody in a medical setting. You know, the fist bump might be okay for your friends at an informal softball game, but I don't know about, but they think all of these things, they just haven't been adopted yet. They think these things are preferable to shaking the hand because shaking the hand can transmit disease. So, wait, before I get to this one. So I'd like to ask Lauren and Joe what they think about this emerging concern about shaking hands, transmitting disease, and JAMA editorializing, we should no longer shake hands. What do you think? Uh, I, I, I think it's nonsense. I'm, it's too informal, like you said. Uh, with uh, transmission of microbes and everything, um, if everyone goes to the antibacterial, which is 99 point whatever percent effective, then we should be pretty um, you know, good with that. But uh, I, I don't know, the old school standing there washing your hands for a few seconds, number one, I think it takes more time with your back usually against the patient. And also it's not nearly as effective. So that's why I verbalize that I'm washing my hands as opposed to physically washing them. We do have a sink in the room, but God, I don't know when, you know, they've been really thoroughly cleaned and how well, you know, how great the soap is either. So, you know, you know how long it takes now. To, to thoroughly wash your hands, and it's just too long. And, and unfortunately, with our you know, 10, 15-minute appointments, if you're lucky, then that's eating up a lot of time. Too. Joe, what do you think? You think this is so I much think that's <clears throat> politi political correctitude run amok is what I think. I, I, I don't think it has much to do with science. Now, if they had the data that actually showed that we're transmitting germs from patient to patient, it would be hard to argue with that. So, you know, another thing, this isn't part of nonverbal where we're communicating to the patient, but another thing that goes along with this same idea is that we shouldn't be wearing white coats. Mm -hmm. Or if we wear white coats, they should be short sleeve because at the end of the white coat, at the sleeve, they've, they've cultured bacteria. Mm -hmm. And even if you change your coat every day, by the end of the day, you can find bacteria on there. Yeah. So just a brief comment, Lauren, we'll start with you and then Joe. What do you think about that one? That's tough. Um, we at Geisinger have gone to scrubs, um, very uniform scrubs. Um, our CEO that came in, he's a little resistant to it because he actually came in after the clinicians were wearing scrubs. Um, he's fine with the nurses, but he, he does say if your department has uh, used these scrubs, then. but certain colors, you know, just black and navy and everyone's uniform. Um, I do think that that's helpful, but I still do wear my coat, but I do roll my sleeves up to about my elbow, um, and uh, our institution does not wash our coats for us, which mm. is ridiculous. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm still traditional in that sense. I do think it looks nice with a, with a white coat, but it's tough. I... 
Joe? I, I personally know, and I bet everybody in this room also knows, uh, as do you, uh, dermatologists and other physicians who wear the same coat day in and day out, and it's rare that it ever gets washed because they hang it up when they leave. And I don't know that that's the rule, but I can, I, in my experience, it's quite common. So I'm, I agree with banning the white coat. I like scrubs personally, although I'm not in love with them, but I don't have to decide what to wear every day. That's the great thing. <laughs> okay. Now let's talk about addressing the patient. So somebody mentioned, I don't remember if it was Joe or Lauren, about you know, eye contact, which is certainly appropriate. Right? It should always have eye contact. But which of these two styles, Lauren, if you're talking to the patient, do you think the patient would prefer? Um, or do you think there's a difference? I do. The provider on the right, he's more open, he's more relaxed, having his arms out, um, being closed off, having your arms behind your back. It's more of a maybe an elitist stance, more of a I'm, I'm the powerful one. Um, so I do feel that the one on the right is more preferable. Okay. So you're correct. It's said, according to the people who do research on this, that palms up, arms out, I'm honest, I disclose. Whereas while you're talking to the patient, if the hands are behind your back, the patient interprets that as I'm hiding something. So if not sort of a wide open arms up stance, at least don't put the hands behind the back because they're wondering, what's going on back there? Are you hiding a weapon? Mm -hmm. Now, this is another interesting part of addressing the patient, and I think there clearly is eye contact, but there's another part of this stance, if you will, how the patient's being addressed that's important. Joe, can you see what the, the difference is between these two images? Yeah, the patient's having to strain a little bit to maintain eye contact, and she's getting a, a could be seen as getting just a, a bit of his attention. He's as if he's about to wander off somewhere else in the room. His mind wants to take him somewhere else. Okay. How about the, the doctor, the provider's stance? There's a difference there. Can you see that? Joe? He, well, other than the orientation? Yes, the orientation. Not much. Okay, the orientation is exactly it. Because look where the feet are. See the difference? Yeah. And his orientation of his body. So it's been said that the heart speaks and the feet follow. If the feet are pointed to the door or away, anywhere away from the patient, the patient's mind interprets that as a subtle hint that you're already thinking about leaving and you're no longer concentrating on the patient. So not only should you maintain good level eye contact, but you should point your feet and your body, your trunk, towards the patient because that's interpreted as the opposite. You're not in a hurry to leave. You're concentrating on the patient. And that means they're getting your attention. I don't have a slide about this, but there's another nonverbal communication that's been very, very extensively studied. And that's whether you stand or sit. And there have been several studies done in different states in the US 
where there was an actual timing of the amount of time the provider spent in the room. If they sat down as opposed to stood up, the same amount of time, always uniform, same amount of time, the people who were subjects, who were surrogates for patients, always felt that the provider who sat spent more time than the provider who stood. Now, if you're going to do a procedure other than maybe, I like to sit when I do surgery when I can, but I mean just talking to the patient, tell me about your rash, tell me about your family, that sort of thing. I sit, and I think that that does make a difference. You can spend the same amount of time according to several different studies. If you sit, the patient interprets that as you're spending more time than if you stand, even though it's the same amount of time. So I don't have a picture, but I wanted to make that point. Before, before you go on, I actually got um, beds, newer beds recently um, that, that uh, go lower to the floor, number one, for my elderly patients not to have to step up on the stair, but also so I can have the bed lower so I can sit eye to eye with them instead of them either being up above me or, or I'm above them. Because um, as soon as I do my skin check and we're going to discuss something, I sit on my chair, roll over and to them, and then we have our discussion on what we're going to do. Very good point. Distance, how much distance you spend how, there is between you and the patient. Four feet's kind of a social distance, but it's not a distance that really is conducive to medical care. Less than 18 inches is too intimate, so somewhere over a foot and a half is kind of felt to be an adequate distance. So, Joe and Lauren, let's say do you touch a patient when you're concluding a visit? You're all done with the patient, and you might say something like, I'll see you next time, don't worry, we're going to take care of this, or something like that. Do you touch the patient, pat them on the back, or touch them anywhere? Joe, we'll start I, with I you. I totally agree with the need to do that. I do that very deliberately, and I always call the patient by their name and touch them. And I don't just touch it. I give it a squeeze if it's appropriate. And uh, I know when I'm the patient, and at my age, I get to be a patient far too often. It makes a lot of difference when the provider shows that kind of communication. Lauren? I do. The last things I do, I'm really uh, a big proponent of handing education to patients. I think if they walk away with something physically, they actually feel more satisfied too. So I always give a skin cancer brochure, an AK brochure, whatever they had, and we treated. So I give that, and I give my card with my number highlighted, and I tell them, there's anything, you call me directly, I have my own direct line, this and this. And then I shake their hand, depending on our relationship. If it's a new patient, I shake, and, and then um, that's it. But if it's someone that I've been treating for a long time, I pat their back, I rub their back, or I hug them. And, you know, the old men sometimes give me a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so I'm going to show you three examples. Don't worry, we'll find out what this is and get rid of it. Don't worry, we'll find out what this is and get rid of it. Don't worry, we'll find out <laughs> what this is and get rid of it. Okay, Joe, which one of these do you think is probably the least favorable way of touching the patient at the end? I think patting them on the head is probably uh, seldom indicated. <laughs> Lauren, do you agree? <laughs> 
I do. Yeah, the other ones I don't think are actually appropriate either, but that one certainly I think is the most inappropriate. Okay, so here's what the surrogate patient thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, they're married. That's a husband oh, and wife team. <laughs> but I think patting on the back is okay. It's said, according to research that, that, that's been done, that touching on the top of the hand or at the end of the wrist is okay. Or patting on the back is okay. And these other things might not be entirely appropriate. And I think patting someone on the top of the head is carrying things a little bit far. Okay, now let's go the other way for just a second. Communication from the patient to the doctor. So Lauren, here's the same patient. Which patient would you prefer to deal with and why? Certainly the left, she's engaged in the conversation, especially if you're standing right in front of her. She, she's looking up and to the left. She's not, does, you don't have her full attention. She's skeptical. She doesn't want to be there. She's giving you a little attitude. Excellent. So obviously, it is important. If the patient isn't giving you eye contact, it means exactly what Lauren said. You're not engaged. The patient's not engaged in the encounter. And it can be for a lot of reasons. It can be that they're disagreeing with it, they're angry, they're exhausted, they waited so long, they missed lunchtime. You know, it can be a lot of things. The other thing it can represent is deceit. So if you've asked them a question and they now look away, that may be a sign of they're not gonna tell you the truth. And there's some other clues to lying. And this is important. And I don't mean that you say, Mrs. Jones, are you lying to me? But you should have a feel for maybe they're not giving you the whole story. And it may be important for you to have the whole story to decide what to do with the patient. So if they're hesitant, you ask them a question, have you had unprotected sex within the last 9 to 90 days? You're thinking syphilis. Um, hmm. Hesitation to answer the question. If their pitch of the voice goes up while they're answering your question, if you lose eye contact, as was just illustrated, if they blink a lot before or during an answer, if they're tapping their foot, or gripping their hands suddenly while they're answering. Now, gripping the hands can also be a sign of anxiety, like they're afraid of what's going to happen because they're answering your question in this way. But it can also be a sign of deceit. So if you lose eye contact, if they hesitate to answer, the pitch of their voice goes up, they blink a lot while they're answering, or just before they start answering, they start tapping their foot, those are common nonverbal signs that tell you the patient may not be telling you the entire truth. And you know, having heard a talk on this subject before, I kind of literally, deliberately watch for these things, and they're accurate. This is from people who study the nonverbal communication in infinite detail, just like we study the pathogenesis of acne. And by God, they are reliable. Okay, watch those feet. It's not just your feet. 
It's the patient's feet. Joe, what does the patient's foot placement say to you? There's a difference. It said, I, the only thing I can get from that is she sees he, his, out of the corner of her eye his feet are rather large and he might step on her. She, <laughs> she's look, getting them back. There's probably more to that, but that's the only, thing I, only conclusion I can draw. Okay, look at the placement of her feet. Lauren? Mm -hmm. she's, uh, she's turned towards him a little bit more in the left photo. Her feet are angled towards him. A same kind of face-to-face um, -face more interaction than she's a little bit more awkwardly turned her feet are, fa are forward and not pointed towards him so she's not probably open to the conversation yes and it's the same thing as with the provider your feet should point to the patient it indicates you're engaged you're involved you're concerned if your feet or your torso or both are pointed towards the door the patient subconsciously reads that as you're not interested it's the same thing Watch for it. Watch for it. If your patient's feet suddenly shift, they're turned towards you as you're talking to them, and if their feet suddenly shift away from you, especially towards the door of the exam room, they don't like what you said, they don't agree with what you said, they're no longer engaged, they don't trust what you said, they're upset a lot about what you said and they want to get the hell out of Dodge, it means that you are no longer effectively communicating as well as you just were. Watch their foot placement just like you watch your foot placement. When the toes are pointed towards the provider, patient isn't scared, they're accepting the diagnosis, they're agreeing with the plan, and the contrary thing is true when the toe is pointed away from the provider, particularly towards the door. They may be scared, they don't like the diagnosis, they're denying the diagnosis, they don't agree with your therapy. It's a negative connotation. Okay, right after the provider says something, you say to the patient, I think we need to give you isotretinoin now. We've tried antibiotics and now we have to go to a medication that has some potential side effects and I'm going to get some, I'm going to need to get some blood work. Right after you say something, that lesion needs to be cut out, needs to be cut out today, needs to be biopsied today. You say something to the patient and the patient does this. This is a non-verified, non-verbal cue. Joe, any idea what that means? Well, I used to sell cars many years ago. This is going back 100 years ago. And when the patient, they taught us when the patient does that or touches their neck or bends their head down and fiddles with their ear, uh, you've kind of lost them or you're in the process of losing them or they've lost confidence and don't agree with what you said. Excellent. So this means... It's what you said doesn't smell right. And exactly, you've now lost them. And Joe's actually done a beautiful job of previewing the next several. Sorry. Lauren? Guess it doesn't, he uh, it doesn't sound right. It huh? doesn't sound right. What you just said doesn't sound right. And Joe already said this one and illustrated it beautifully, right? 
you're stressing me out. I don't like this. It's not going the way I want it to go. All of these are verifiable, reproducible, nonverbal forms of communication from the patient to you. So if they're doing this, you're telling them something, especially if it's something that's pretty significant, and they rub their nose, or they fiddle with their ear, or they put their hand on the back of their neck, you need to go an extra step to reassure them or give them a little more information. And the interesting thing is that research shows that there actually are itching. They're rubbing their nose. It does itch. But what it means is it doesn't smell right. Their ear actually does itch, or their neck actually does itch, but it doesn't sound right. You're stressing me out. That's what it really means, but it actually does itch. It's kind of interesting. Okay. Lauren. You're talking to the patient, and the patient now assumes this pose. What does that say to you? As I'm doing the same thing, I notice while I'm sitting <laughs> up here right now. Um, she's closed off. She's kind of put up this wall. Uh, she's isolating herself, and she doesn't want the interaction really to continue. Yeah, this is absolutely correct. I'm closing myself off from you, the provider. Now, that could be for a lot of reasons. It could be, and I've walked into a room, I try and be on time as best I can. I really don't like to be more than 10 minutes behind the patient's actual scheduled time. But, you know, stuff happens and it's inevitable. Someday you're going to run late. So it could be that they're just upset. I've walked in a room when they're like this, and it's upset because you've had made them wait. But it could be that they wanted all the kids seen then, too. They called up and said, I want my whole family seen, and your schedule was so full, you just couldn't do it. Or it could be that they have problems with the last charge or with billing. Or it could be that they don't agree with what you said, or all sorts of things. But when you see this pose, it means I'm shutting myself off from you. Now, here's the question I'd like to pose to Joe and Lauren. We know that that pose means that. Do you, we'll start with Joe, if you see a patient who's like that, do you say, is there something bothering you? There's two philosophies that have been equally espoused. You confront that. You see the patient who looks like that. You know they're closed off. You know something's bothered them. One philosophy is you confront it. You say, hey, something bothering you? Not in that tone of voice, of course. Or you just conduct yourself as you normally would in the encounter, hoping that whatever it is that caused this will dissipate. Joe, how would you handle a patient? You walk in and they're sitting like that. Well, I kind of pitch it back to them as a non-threatening question, and I'll say it appears that, uh, uh, that this has not met your expectations. Tell me why that is so. So you believe in actually bringing that to the forefront? Yes. Lauren? If it's a, an immediate uh, thing, like you said, as soon as you walk in, if I'm even a minute or two late, I do apologize to the patient. And I say, if it's longer than that, then I say, I'm sorry, my last patient needed more of my attention. And if you do as well, you'll get you know my full attention for longer than your appointment. And usually that'll put them at ease. Um, but if you're talking and you're going through your visit and it's continuing, then I would bring it up and... and, and because it is the elephant in the room and the whole visit's just ineffective you know, at that point. So I, I would certainly, if I notice that 
their gesture isn't changing. So that makes three of us, because I do the same thing. If I see someone who's closed off from me, for whatever reason, it may have nothing to do with you as a provider or even the gist of their medical visit. Like I said, it could be they had trouble finding a parking place that's making them upset. Or they had a wait, but it doesn't have to do anything with your skill or ability to deal with their medical problem. I confront it. I just say, is there something bothering you? Because this is almost a universal sign that something is bothering the patient. So here are the messages to take home. We've gone through a, a lot of this. Communication between the patient, family, healthcare providers, the health team plays a vital role in the not only adherence or compliance with ambulatory care, but it's essential for the proper provider-patient relationship. And it really helps to avoid problems, helps to avoid misunderstandings, helps to avoid a visit, as Lauren said, that's not effective anymore. You've lost the ability to conduct a meaningful, effective relationship in that setting at that moment, if you know they're closed off, if they're angry, if their feet are pointed towards the door, if they're looking away, if they're rubbing their nose, ear, or neck, there's something that's amiss, and that encounter is not going to be as effective as it should or could have. And effective communication is the key to success in your professional career, whether that's communicating with other people in the office, your colleagues in the office, your patients, and I dare say, spouses, significant others, et cetera, et cetera. Communication goes a long way to healthy and productive relationships. So watch for and understand some of these nonverbal cues which can facilitate good communication verbally because if you read what they're thinking nonverbally, if it suggests that nonverbally it suggests what they're worried about, or if they're angry, or if they're shut off, or if they're not telling you the full truth, then by understanding that and using that to your advantage, because you are looking for nonverbal cues, and after a while it becomes second nature. You don't have to sit there like with a little checkoff sheet. You learned to watch for these, then it'll help you in your verbal communications and in your ability to deliver very effective health care. Now you can supply some nonverbal communication to the panel. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Um, I'd like to ask if Joe or Lauren have any concluding remarks they'd like to add as well. You first. You can go ahead. One thing I was going to say, there are times when I think that most of what we've talked about here today is is designed to please patients, to make them feel like they want to come back and see you, which are all laudable goals and without which we wouldn't continue to have a practice. I think there are times when uh, I say things deliberately, uh, verbally, that are shocking to people. Let me give you an example. I had an 11-year-old the other day that weighed 317 pounds and was five foot seven. And uh, the mom was about twice that size. Then that's not my job to straighten them out in the weight department. But almost all their concerns were uh, uh, gathered around that particular issue of diet. They happened to be Native American. So we spent some time, and I was a little bit uh, uh, 
I won't say insulting, but I didn't try to soften my words too much. I figured if if I didn't get in and get my licks in and say something a little bit shocking and kind of wake them up, uh, uh, apparently their PCP wasn't doing much of that because they weren't even aware they had a problem. And so I, I, there's communication of a certain type that we've been talking about, which is most of it, but sometimes communication needs to be a little bit of a, a mild slap in the face. Yeah, direct. And, and you know what? The same thing happened to me with a patient who I've known the family literally as long as I've lived in Houston. I watched the child, who was the patient at this particular juncture, grow up. He was active, athletic, appropriate body type, and then he put on a gazillion pounds. And he came in and he weighed about 350 pounds, and he was there for removal of a mole. So he wasn't there for his weight. And I'm not going to do weight management, but I looked him right in the eyes, and I've known him since he was a toddler. And I said, do you want to die soon? I mean, it was shocking, and it was direct. And it was meant to be shocking and direct. And I absolutely agree with Joe. Sometimes you do things that are very, very direct verbally, and you have to. And it actually is out of concern for the patient. And it may well not work. But it may I, not. I, but I, told, I told that patient, I said, you're two people walking in one body. And I turned to the mom and said the same thing. And I knew it was a little insulting, but I figured I didn't have much to lose because this kid was on a one-way trip downward. Yeah. Lauren? And sometimes taking a more informal approach of things. You know, we have our, our younger kids or teenage patients. And every point in our life, you know, I'm still teetering on that edge where I can kind of uh, chum it up with the with the teenagers. You know, I'd like to think maybe when I'm past 40, maybe that'll change a little bit. But uh, still in my 30s, I feel like, you know, I can be cool and, 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 and sit down and kind of sit there in a more relaxed fashion, maybe, you know, on my chair, crossed over, hanging over to them. So, you know, how do you feel about this? And, you know, mom or dad are in the room, but ultimately for certain things you, you get a better sense if you're if you kind of make yourself look cool or make yourself look a little more informal to certain patients to get uh, the real the real story and, and to have them trust you. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So that brings us to a conclusion to nonverbal communication. I hope you got something out of that and we'll use some of these cues in your daily, daily professional encounters. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, the keypads are located at the end of the table in the white baskets. Oh, right now, okay. The overall performance of the speaker. What a team. How useful will this session be in your practice? Damn right. As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Take care of questions. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>
So we have a few minutes. Let's see if there are any questions you all would like to ask. Keep in mind, neither of us is social scientists, and we're giving you our opinions. There, excuse me, there's a microphone right, right there. Yeah, there it goes. Woo. Is it on now? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I looked at a study that talked about scrubs versus street clothes and white coats, and the scrubs actually didn't do nearly as well as the white coats. There was a... Um, an image of them being dirty or coming out of surgery, and, and really the white coat was preferred. So how you do it with the scrubs and the white coat probably would be a really nice way to go. I've started wearing my white coat more now, too, with the scrubs, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, there's two things. There's, Joe put it very nicely. It's sort of political correctness at its extreme. But there are people, and they do have data, that show that at the pockets of the white coat, the top of the pocket, and at the end of the sleeve of the white coat, you do accumulate pathogenic bacteria. And then you're maybe touching the patient, your hands going in your pocket and out of your pocket to get a prescription pad, dermatoscope, you know, stethoscope is what they were looking at, mostly in a non-derm environment. But there are people who firmly believe we should ditch the white coats in Great Britain. I think they've outlawed them except for short sleeves and no pockets. On the other hand, if you look at patient preference, patient preference is for the provider to have a white coat on. That clearly distinguishes this is a provider. I don't have to worry about someone who's claiming to have a degree who kind of wandered in off the street. I mean, they know that's not the truth, but in their minds it reconciles better if the individuals have a white coat. So patient surveys have always favored white coats, but there are people who are concerned about the potential transmission of disease that way. I personally wear a white coat. I change my white coat every day. It goes to a professional laundry place, and I have a whole bunch of them so I don't run out of my white coats. I just feel more comfortable with that white coat on and knowing that patients prefer it. I feel more comfortable with it. But there are other people who have adopted scrubs because it's short sleeve, and you know you're going to be rid of them at the end of the day, so you don't have to worry about accumulating bacteria for the next day because you're going to put on a new pair of scrubs. I don't think there's an absolute right and wrong answer. I would challenge the finding of bacteria on the edge of the sleeve as equating to causing massive numbers of infections in patients. Those are two really separate things, and the dots have not been connected. So I, I don't think there's a right answer or a wrong answer. I think you should do with what you feel most comfortable with, but do keep in mind that fomites, whether it's a dermatoscope or a stethoscope or the sleeve of your white coat, can carry and harbor pathogens, and you should try and keep them clean, whether that's changing your white coat every day 
or wiping things off like with stethoscope before you reuse it. I, I find a difference between, you know, we've all been in the OR, at least for school, and those, those uh, scrubs, truly the traditional OR scrubs that are too big on everyone. They look sloppy. I find that very different than the ones that are tailored, the newer ones, you know, different companies that have more of a sleek design. I find that more professional than certainly just the, the traditional kind of general surgery OR scrubs. So th I think there's a difference there. Um, also, I think with, with those uh, studies, you know, it's more important, it, that all started really in the ICU too, you know, they ban ties, they ban white coats, and in critical patients, you know, I can understand maybe being a little more concerned, but like in our clinics, like you're saying, I don't think it's going to make a, a big difference. I do kind of a combination sometimes, certainly if I'm wearing, uh, if it's a day that I'm wearing just a, a professional kind of a business casual, I always wear my white coat. Um, if I'm wearing my, sometimes my scrubs, and of course in my condition now, being, you know, almost delivering, it's like whatever I can fit on, you know, I'll, I'll put on <laughs> So I'll have scrub pants, I'll have a shirt, and I'll definitely have my white coat on. Let's answer this question, and then we'll get to you, yeah. and we'll, we'll uh, yield the floor. So the question that's been asked is, how do you handle a patient that needs to be discharged? By discharged, I assume the questioner means you're, you're firing them. You know, you're doing a trump. You're fired. You're discharging them from your practice as opposed to discharge from the hospital. So first of all, there are state laws that govern this. And there are obligations that you are under, and they will differ from state to state. In the state of Texas, you have to tell them why, and in broad terms, but most importantly, you have to offer them a list of similarly qualified providers, and you have to still administer urgent care for 30 days. So, dear, and I don't like to do it in person, I don't like to do it on the phone, I think it should be done by letter with return receipt requested so that you have evidence that they have received this communication. Dear Mr. Jones, we don't seem to see eye to eye. You're not doing what I asked you to do. Mr. Jones, you're very disruptive in our office. Mr. Jones, whatever, whatever. The last time you pulled a gun on me, I didn't like it so much. <laughs> you know, Dear Mr. Jones, um, I am no longer going to assume medical care for you. Here's a list and the local community organization should have a list of providers or something you can give them. Um, here's a list of people who are qualified to take care of you. After 30 days, I will no longer be your health care provider. Love, Ted. I mean, that's kind of the way we do it with a letter, return receipt requested. One. I'm in a large dermatology department, so honestly, I don't personally deal with that. So our office manager would send a similar type of letter. I know in my multi-specialty group where I work, you know, when there's issues with um, with the pain contracts, pain medicine contracts, and stuff, that's what their letter states. But for us, you know, it would be very similar. Uh, there's a comment down here. If I feel that the patient needs a hug, I give them a hug. I think that's very nice. And I've done it, but I would not do it with a patient you don't know well. Right. Someone you've taken care of for 20 years, and they've lost a spouse, let's right. say, and they told you that during the encounter, Mr. Jones, let me give you a hug. Mrs. Jones, let me give you a hug. I, I think that's very empathetic. And there's a real lack of empathy, I think, perhaps less than there used to be. I think we're not quite mechanical surgeons who tend to be sort of cold and dispassionate. I think a lot of us are very empathetic. Demonstrating that empathy in someone where it's appropriate, especially a patient you've had a relationship with for a very long time, I think is laudable. Lauren? Absolutely. Yep, that happens 
quite often, you know, I have a very large elderly population, and, you know, you, you catch wind that their spouse passed away and everything, absolutely, you know, and if you can just tell they're about to break down in front of you, and if they do, you know, certainly warranted, and, and you've built that relationship, and they feel a lot better. And we'll take the last question from the floor. Oh, just a comment about comment. the white coats. Actually, too, I work for a home care company doing dermatology and wound care in homes for people who can't get out. So, I mean, we are not allowed to wear white coats. Absolutely, one of their rules, no white coats at all, is considered um, something that puts the patient off that they don't feel comfortable with in their home. And I struggled with that. I don't like the coats because they don't fit me. That's why I don't like them. But I don't have any pockets. It's like, what in the heck am I going to do? So I wear an apron. I actually tie on an apron and fill it with all my stuff and go to the door of my apron because I can't function without pockets. Second thing is, is that whether I'm short or whatever, but I can't keep the edges of my white coats clean. They're just dirty looking all the time, and I think that is unprofessional looking. Even when I roll them up, now I have all these lines where they were rolled up and they don't come clean, and the cleaners, whether I clean them or send them out. So I actually cut mine off three-quarter lengths and put on a wide-colored band, and I match it to my... my um, monogram that I'm required to wear, and my patients actually like it. They comment on it. So. You get an 11 out of 10 for innovation. <laughs> so thank you very much. We want to let the next uh, talk begin. Thank you again for your kind attention. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.